listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Everybody, what's going on? My name is Emil Gallardo. I am the writer director of One Two Three All Eyes on Me, and I am currently working on a feature called Asylum. Emil Gallardo, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Anytime. I'm so excited to have you on. You make powerful short films, and uh, you've had some pretty serious success. Before we go into that, I just want to introduce this audience to you. Uh, you a little bit better. I'm going to read from your bio. Of course, this is the internet. So if anything sounds off or outdated, just follow up with me and say, hey, let me correct you on this. Uh, Emil is an award-winning Mexican-American writer-director from Los Angeles. In 2020, he was selected by HBO to their directing fellowship and later won Panavision's Future Filmmaker Award. With all of his work, Emil strives to tell unforgettable stories that stand out for their authenticity and willingness to confront uncomfortable truths. His latest project, the Oscar qualifying film, One, Two, Three, Eyes on Me, is no exception. And so, Emil, I'll start, I want to start um, back in the beginning, Back in the beginning, because in your bio, we talk a little bit, well, it reads a little bit, I should say, about your authenticity and this willingness to confront uncomfortable truths. And that's certainly true in all the work I've seen you do. Uh, Thank you. Anytime. What was that moment where you knew you wanted to direct? Uh, So, yeah, so I I knew from an early age that I wanted to write. I thought... um, I thought that things turned out well in my life because there was a long time where I wasn't certain. But um, if they turned out well, I thought I was going to be a writer. And to me, you know, as a kid, that meant books. Um, And I love movies, but uh, I hadn't thought about I didn't really I think as a kid, I didn't know. I didn't think about how they were made, even though I grew up in L.A. and they were kind of being made in the background all the time. But I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anybody that worked in film, didn't grow up with a camera. Um, so I thought I'd grow up and be a writer and it wasn't until, it wasn't until like actually probably about four years ago when I went to film school, I actually worked professionally in film, then had about a 12 year break. Uh, I went into tech, moved to the Bay area, left LA. Um, and then I, and then I went to film school and it wasn't until I had made my first little film. I think it was three minutes long. It was our first assignment. And, uh, it was the first time I'd actually written and directed. And I, I knew instantly I, I was horrible at it, but I knew like, this is all I want to do for the rest of my life. It's a powerful moment in, indeed. And I know that uh, in your short film, and this is a really short film, I think it was just under one minute, uh, your short film, My Story, but it was oh, a yeah. powerful one minute. You sort of, um, uh, anytime, you, you sort of give the audience a sense that movies were a way for you to 
go to a different place, a, almost a parallel universe. And I love that you used Indiana Jones as the example. That was <laughs> yeah. my favorite uh, movie as a kid. And um, I, I can tell you, I'm not super popular for liking Indiana Jones more than Star Wars, but that's who I am. You know what? Me too. Um, yeah, but that's what it was. I mean, you, you hit it on the head. Like uh, my household was crazy at times. Um, there was a lot of friction, especially between me and my dad. And like movies were kind of the time where, you know, we had an hour and a half, two hours where the house was peaceful. Um, so not only was there not that conflict, but, you know, I'm like sitting in my living room in L.A., but I'm transported to <laughs> wherever Indiana Jones is, you know, and a, a boulder's <laughs> chasing me and I'm sliding under the door. And it just like, yeah. And this was even before I thought about making them. I just that's what I'm saying. I just had this deep love for its for a film's ability to take you somewhere else. And, you know, as a kid, you can't necessarily leave your house and come and go as you please. Um, so movies were kind of my way out and it was something our whole family was into. So it, it worked for all of us. I am curious though, because a lot of filmmakers, a lot of creatives, there was someone in their family that inspired them that was also in the business or aspired to be in it. Is it fair to say that wasn't the case for you or, or, or was there someone that was inspiring you to be creative and that wanted to maybe write or direct themselves? Um, not, not anything related to film. Um, I think kind of between my sister, my mom and my dad, uh, all of us kind of enjoy writing. Um, my mom and my dad didn't pursue it. My sister's not pursuing it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of the only one that's like actually tried to make a living off writing and like off of a creative uh, avenue. So no one, no one actually pursued it professionally, but I think we all kind of had this love for writing. Um, and I was kind of, you know, I was also a horrible student, so I didn't, I didn't do well in school at all. Um, so to this day, like I don't have the best grammar. Um, I kind of don't like rules in general, so it works. But, um, but the love for telling stories, I think was kind of shared between all of us. I mean, you have that in common for sure. Um, I just, I uh, found myself incredibly bored in school and, uh, it, it's almost like a, a curse when you're young and you want to do well by your parents, but somehow or another, somewhere you were exposed to the fraud that is the, the grading <laughs> system in, in middle yeah. school and high school. And once you realize, especially when you're at that young, impressionable age, once you realize something is a fraud in your mind, yeah. uh, you, you can't uh, trick yourself into uh, thinking otherwise. And then you grow up and you realize the grades, although they are a fraud, they do represent something. Right. So, and, and you start, Oh, I didn't get that part, but I, I was the same way. So in my mind, I was, I was always telling stories, always trying to do something creative um, after having sort of understood the work and being bored with it, or just realizing that work would never uh, be of any consequence whatsoever in my, in my life. Mm. And so I can, I can definitely relate to that. Um, you, you sound like <laughs> although someone wasn't necessarily saying you should be creative somewhere in your family, someone, you guys got that creative bug because you loved all you love movies, all of you wrote, but you had something else. You have this writing and this creativity, but then you have this entrepreneurialism and this sort of tech side to you. Mm -hmm. You actually ran a gangster rap hip hop <laughs> website. Uh, <laughs> how did you get into that at a young age? And then why did you have to sell it? 
Man, okay, this is funny you found that. Um, so, uh, so okay, so similar. So the, our two things were so. Um, now I mean now it's all you're taking me back, right? So I think <laughs> my dad, my dad, I think should have been a musician because naturally he had a lot of musical musical talent, um, but he never pursued that. And I think a lot of his animosity towards us and towards everyone around him came from him just feeling trapped in his life. But uh, along with movies, he would take us to Blockbuster and then he would take us to, uh, specifically me, he would take me to Tower Records back in the day when, you know, you'd get a tape or a CD and you could return it if you didn't like it. So, you know, I'm 10, 11, 12, and I would just grab stuff off the shelf that looked interesting. And uh, I remember I grabbed two short CD, uh, Shorty <laughs> the Pimp, in 1992. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he, I remember, you know, he went to pay for it. And he looked at it and it's, you know, it's too short in a white t-shirt on the corner in Oakland. And there's like prostitutes behind him. And, and my dad's like, do you even know what a pimp is? And I was like, fuck yeah, I know what a pimp is. I had no idea. Right. <laughs> and so he told me I couldn't buy it. And so then I really wanted it. And so I don't remember how, but, but I ended up in possession of this, this album and I just fell in love. I just, I just love too short from the time I was about 12. Um, and so that kind of got me into, like that kind of rap. And then from there, uh, I just found this website back in goddamn like 97, maybe. Mm-hmm. And there was this other kid at school and he liked too short and I liked too short. And then he's like, well, there's this other dude, brother Lynch. And he was this gangster yeah. rapper out of Sacramento. No brother Lynch. Uh, okay. So there you go. So he was like, man, we've been bumping brother Lynch all through the projects. You got to check him out. And so then I listened to him and he was tight and, and I was just done at that point. I mean, I, I was in my teens. And um, so I ended up buying this website that existed already. Another guy started it and then he ended up selling it to me. And then, yeah, I ran that for several years. And I think it was my first, it prepared me for a lot because I think I was about 20 at the time that I bought it. Um, and I didn't have any kind of tech backgrounds. I didn't know anything about websites. Um, but I just love the music and, you know, I'd already been part of the community on there. And this was back. I mean, so our whole concept to the site, this was, this is in 2000. So this is like way before a lot of social media, but our concept was as a fan, you could come on the site and you could actually interact with the actual artists uh. at the time that was novel. Cause there wasn't Instagram, wasn't Twitter, wasn't Facebook, all this stuff. So, and then we would throw in-person events and, and they were, they were like informal, like we'd have barbecues and all the rappers would come out and the fans would come out and we just try to make it into this community. So, um, so yeah, so I did that for a few years and then, and then that was actually, I sold the site and it was at that point in time that I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And that's when I was like, well, let me give movies a try. And I, I found my way onto a softcore porn site as my very first job as a PA and it. And my movie career started there. <laughs> I love that story. I love that yeah. story for so many reasons. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's really fascinating. So just to be clear on the site, were you writing, were you writing about hip hop on this site? No, uh, it was mostly a message board. So okay, got it. we had different uh, sections for different regions and we had, you know, like underground, mostly gangster rappers from those regions. And I just kind of coordinated everything and, you know, brought more artists to the site, try to make the site bigger. And so I just, I, I ran the site. I didn't, I didn't write for it or anything like that. Let me tell you how ahead of your time you really were. So I have a friend named Steve Burnham and he is a 
uh, a serial entrepreneur, and he had a business that he was able to exit. He sold it and uh, for millions of dollars, I, uh, I, I believe. But he, uh, what it was, was that you could play a sports video game, so like Madden or yeah. FIFA or whatever, with your favorite player from oh, that sport. Nice. So it's literally your idea, but just in the realm of video games. Yeah. And um, so you, my friend, were definitely on to something early on uh, with, with that. My first hip hop album, though, was uh, I want to say the first one I bought hip hop was N.W.A. Yep. And I used to have to hide from my father to listen <laughs> to it because it was so yeah. filthy. I look back <laughs> yeah. on that now and I don't know if I if if. I don't know how I feel sometimes about the fact that like hip hop was more message oriented before NWA, but that's a whole nother conversation. And I have this fond memory of being in the grocery store and there used to be this word that no one uses in hip hop or music anymore. And it's the word posse. Yeah. Well, what does posse sound like? Sounds like pussy. So I'm walking around the grocery store with my dad and I'm (laughs) rapping these lyrics and I say posse and he slapped my head so hard. He hit me a couple of times, I think in my head in the grocery store in front of everybody. He said, don't you ever say that again. And I said, dad, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. It's posse. It's P-O-S-S-E. He didn't know. He didn't know what I was talking about. So yeah, that was uh, my uh, entrance into, into, let's say gangster rap myself. It wasn't a, it wasn't an easy one. Um, being a Mexican American filmmaker, I'm, yeah. I'm curious about that. What, uh, what advantages or drawbacks uh, do you see your ethnicity bringing to your filmmaking endeavors? And um, do you think there are additional hurdles that you have to get over because of your ethnicity? Um, great question. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like, well, so, you know, ethnicity has always been a big part of my life. Um, you know, growing up in, so I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, just like, like east of East LA, mm-hmm. um, south of Pasadena. Um, and I remember really, like really early on, just like, uh, so my, the, the area I'm from is like pretty much half Mexican, at least at the time, it was like half Mexican, half Chinese with some Vietnamese mixed in. Um, but there was a lot of racial tension. And then I remember I had a black friend who lived up in Altadena. And I, I remember we were playing outside, like just throwing the football around. And uh, some kids came by and they just wanted to fight me because I wasn't black. And then my friend's cousin ran out the house and it was me, his, my friend and his cousin. And we're, we're just like about to get jumped just off skin color. And it's just always been a, a part of my life and something I've been very conscious of uh, from an early age. Um and I think right now it's like with our political climate and, you know, we just saw, I think, with the vote and, and the breakdown of who voted for Trump and who voted for Biden. And I think a lot of people were surprised that the Latino vote isn't <laughs> like it's not one predictable thing. And, it, you know, there's it represents a lot of different countries and a lot of different values and different parts of the, you know, different parts of the U.S. that people have grown up in or, or migrated to. Um, so I feel like as Latinos, we, <laughs> it is a whole spectrum. And so I very much identify as Mexican American. Um, and ha- like, as far as 
Is it an advantage or what are the obstacles? I mean, recently I was asked to pitch on a script, um, pitch my vision for directing it. And I remember reading it and just feeling like, and it was about immigration. And I just remember feeling like, you know, I could see the good intentions behind the story, but it just felt so off from the way that I would tell that story. And I think that, I think that people are very conscious and, and we're trying to move in a direction that's more inclusive. And, you know, there's this debate about, should you write stories that are about people that aren't your own or should you just stick to like who you are? And does that ever become too confining? And, you know, should Mexicans only write stories about Mexicans? And um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think I'm very early on in my career and in general, I don't, I guess I don't focus I'm struggling to answer this question because I don't really focus on the things that stand in my way. Cause I don't really look at it like that. I, I figure out what I want to do and then I find a way to make it happen. And, um, I try to, you know, if someone's in the way I, I go through them, I go around them, I go under them. I, <laughs> I work with someone else. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I try not to concentrate on any kind of obstacles. Um, cause I don't find it helpful. Yeah. I completely agree with you. We've had, a few of these conversations with, with uh, other guests about uh, the appropriation of a story. And I think that it violates one of the first tenets of not only America, but, but also of creativity. You know, the last thing you want to do, like if, if your goal is to let God in the room, so to speak, so that you can create something masterful, the last thing you want to think about is what you can and cannot say and right. what you can and cannot write. And, um, I think that's such an important concept if you actually are a creative that um, we, we can't, you know, we can't allow ourselves to violate that. And just so to let the audience in on a little bit, uh, we are recording this on the night of January 7th, 2021. And the previous day we had some riots at the Capitol that are now infamous. And um, I'm with you, man. Like the black community was pretty divided on the vote as well. And the fact of the matter is, is, is you're not sure who somebody is in, until maybe sometimes it's too late. You know, yeah. we, we don't know. And then um, very recently we had a conversation with a, a brilliant um, um, Latino uh, Hispanic um, filmmaker, Nick Lopez down in LA. Mm. And I, I just flat out asked him the question, like in your community, like, about 95% of them, 97% of them don't even know what the term Latinx is. Yeah. Do you know, what's your stance on it? Do you want to use the word? Do, do you, yeah. does, does your community want to use the word? Where do they stand? Um, yeah, so, yeah. so what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, it took some adjusting to, but to me, anything we can do to uplift women. And I feel like women were feeling excluded by the term Latino. Um, and so, you know, making it genderless or in a term that's inclusive of uh, more than just men, <laughs> um, I think is important for women and, and I'm supportive of that. So whether it's awkward and I don't, you know, like what, what's the plural phrase, like usage of it. So I don't, I don't feel like it works perfectly, but to me, it's more, it's my way of showing support um, because I very much am, am about empowering women in any way that I can. So, um, so it's, it's all good with me. I love it. I love it. So tell us about the star of the show here. Uh, one, two, three, all eyes on me. 
this is the trailers uh unbelievably powerful and you, you talked about writing for the voices you have a writing partner Derek Ho. Uh, I'd love to hear how you teamed up with him but also uh how you um were able to to direct this and film this and with your lead being uh, a black woman tell us about the movie and 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 how you were able to write uh this and and make sure it was authentic um or help help write it help develop it with Derek and make sure it was authentic yeah. So, uh, so for one, my mom was a teacher for over 30 years. Um, so I just always had a lot of respect for teachers. Um, and then I had seen the cell phone video of, uh, these guys shooting at one another right outside of a school in, in elementary school. And in the video, the teacher asked the kids to get on the ground and then she asked them to sing with her and she starts singing to them and calling them out, you know, one by one, will you sing with me? Will you sing with me? And I was just so, and, and as she's doing that, you're literally hearing like automatic gunfire in the background. Wow. And I just remember being so inspired by her and the courage that she had, the compassion that she had, the selflessness um, and her efforts to like protect them both physically and emotionally. And that was kind of the spark. I mean, in, in the background, you know, every time there was a, uh, one of these incidences, I, I always asked myself, like, how can I contribute to ending this? What can I do? And so I knew I wanted to write a film, make a film about this subject, but it was seeing that video that kind of pushed me over. Um, and so Derek, uh, Derek, <laughs> he was one of the Chinese kids I grew up with. You know, I've known <laughs> Derek since sixth grade, uh, since we were 11 years old. And uh, originally I wasn't planning on having a writing partner, but as I was in film school and working on projects there, I would just kind of get his feedback and stuff. And he just had like endless good ideas. And at some point it was just like, well, well why don't we work together? You know, like, why don't, why don't we make this more than just you kind of giving me your thoughts on something I've written? Like, what if we read it, wrote it together? Um, and it's just kind of evolved like that. And from the authenticity standpoint, um, that's hugely important to me. I think representing anybody in my film, regardless of who they are, I want to make sure that I do my best to represent them correctly. And so we interviewed several teachers and a lot of the film, a lot of moments in the film, the title of the film. Um, so much of that came from the interviews I have with current teachers that are you know, living, living this and doing this every day. Yeah, it's really great. And one thing about your style is the way you shoot all your beats are incredibly deliberate, right? Like if the audience is supposed to see a gun, you show them a gun. If an audience is supposed to see X's on a door, they're going to see X's on a door. Yeah. And that can seem like that style's right on the nose from a filmmaking standpoint, but I find it to be really raw. And I find it to be just what you said you wanted your films to be, which is more heart-wrenching um, and more raw and more dirty than, than some of your, your favorites like Pulp Fiction, et cetera. But uh, talk to talk about that style a little bit. How did you develop? I know you were at AD for a while. Like, yeah. how did you develop the style of cinematography that you have today? Um, I think it. So you're 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 definitely like right on the nose again. I mean, it's it's very deliberate. Um, I very much value the audience's time. So each frame, I'm trying to make the most of it, and I feel like very early on you know, in the first 30 seconds, first couple minutes of a film, any film, even a short film, the audience is kind of assessing, like, does this storyteller 
do they know what they're doing? Are they wasting my time? Um, and so I'm very conscious of that. So I try to be very, I try to, I try to make the, the film as potent as possible and have as little fat as possible. Um, so we're constantly thinking about like, how can we get the most out of each shot? And as far as like stylistically with this film, it just came from what we were trying to accomplish. And that was, we wanted to put the audience in the classroom. And so, you know, that led to the decision to shoot it on an easy rig, for example. So the camera is in handheld. It's not that chaotic, but it's also not fixed on a tripod and it breathes and it, it is a little rough. Um, you know, as it is, as we move around through the world ourselves. So um, a lot of the stylistic choices came from our goal of really trying to create an immersive experience for the audience. And, and I just very much value that. So um, I just, I very much feel like anything that detracts from the story, whether that is some fancy camera move, a performance that's kind of outshining all others, a score that's too heavy, like you name it. Uh, any of those elements and a whole host of others can kind of pull the audience out. And I want to keep them in once, once you hit play, I don't want you to leave until the credits are rolling. So uh, a lot of it came from that. If your co-writer and co-collaborator Derek is listening to this, I, I don't know how he's <laughs> going to feel about the next question, but I, I am, yeah. I am intrigued about, by this. How did you know, or how did you find out, or when did you find out Derek was actually good at writing? That's a funny ass question because, um, so Derek had no intention of writing or making films. Um, so he currently lives in Shanghai and, uh, he's teaching there and Derek like loves music and he's been writing songs, both like lyrically as well as all the music itself. Um, so he didn't have any interest in being a screenwriter. Um, and like I said, I didn't really have interest in having a screenwriting partner, um, <laughs> But he's just one of the most like brilliant people I know. He's just like endlessly creative. Um, like I, I, I kind of hesitate to call myself an artist. I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer director, but I don't know. An artist feels like too big for me, but Derek is an artist. Like he cooks extremely well. His music is great. He's a hell of a writer. Um, he even used to throw parties and, you know, he would put so much effort into creating these experiences for his guests. And, and to me, that's what a film is. It's an experience. And, um, Derek is just an exceptionally talented, creative, flexible, uh, person. And, and, and we have, you know, 30 years of friendship. So we have that shorthand and that trust for each other. And at some point, like I said, it just made sense. Yeah. I love it. When you, you know, it when you see it, that's for sure. And when you have the trust, that's just icing. So uh, I can't wait to see what you guys do uh, next. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, one, two, three, all eyes on me. Great title, by the way, it won the HBO access directing fellowship, or you won that. Um, what is that? So, so for our audience, people who are aspiring filmmakers, uh, yeah. just started filmmaking, or even for those who've been making independent film for a long time, what is the HBO Access Directing Fellowship and, and how did you get involved? Um, so HBO has, uh, it's essentially like, what's a fellowship? So the goal of the fellowship is to develop the fellows, um, not only to strengthen their ability, but then to also find them work. Um, so HBO alternates, they, uh, alternate years. So one year it's a writing fellowship and then the following year it's a directing fellowship. And then that cycle repeats. Um, so I found them, um, 
I was attending Sundance. They, they rejected one, two, three, but I, I had already bought my flight. So I was there. Um, and I had an opportunity to pitch uh, to Leslie Cohen, uh, who heads up HBO Latino there. And uh, I thought it went really well and I was really excited. And I, I've been a huge fan of HBO most of my life. And a lot of my favorite shows are, you know, on HBO. And I, I was talking to Mai, who's the other co-producer on One Two Three, afterwards, and she was saying, you know, I think you and HBO, it just seems like a good fit. Like, I could see your stuff playing on HBO. And so that was actually again like the spark that I wasn't really thinking like that at the time. And so then I just looked into HBO and and you know what else do they have? Are there other things I could participate in? And I found the fellowship and yeah, I submitted one, two, three along with like the rest of the application and went through the interview process. And I was fortunate enough to be uh, one of the fellows selected. I love it. I love it. I hope that um, people listening to this can, can find their way into places like this, fellowships like this. I know that uh, I've written several letters of recommendation for people, but to, to talk to someone who's part of it, that's, that's one, uh, it's so, it's so powerful. So congratulations to you again Thank on you. that. Uh, you briefly mentioned for a second there about you having a 10 year stint in the Bay area uh, <laughs> yeah. with a tech company and you did something that you might find ordinary, but I think a lot of people in any creative realm finds pretty daunting and terrifying, which is you worked at a job for 10 years, had a salary, benefits, PTO, you name it, all the good stuff, good company, good environment, good people. <laughs> and you, so how did you find the courage to quit your longtime day job? And what were the breakthroughs and insights that propelled you forward? Um, so I, yeah, I've been asked this and sorry, that's, that's my dog drinking his water in the background. Um, <laughs> all, all good. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So what happened was I moved to the Bay and, you know, I, again, I kind of got fortunate. I, I found this amazing company and it was just the opposite of a lot of people where they hit rock bottom and they reevaluate their lives. I kind of, I had it all at that point. And, you know, I, I didn't go to college don't have a degree. Um, and here I was at this startup that was just killing it. And I, I love the team. I love the company. I was uh, managing a product and I love the product. The product was doing well, like everything was going well. I'm making the most money I'd ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, you know, I, I had a great life and um, something was missing. And I, I remember sitting at my desk and I'm looking out into the office and everything is going well. Everyone's happy. You know, we have tons of snacks. I got benefits, <laughs> you know, I'm in air conditioning. Cause you know, I, again, I started in production as a PA where there's, you know, 15, 16 hour days, sometimes like overnight and then in the blazing sun. So to be sitting in an air conditioned office in San Francisco, where I'm not from making six figures with direct deposit, you know, that was just a totally different way of living for me. Um, but I just felt like, is this it? You know, like, is this as good as life gets? Like, and I just, I just realized like, I, I want to make movies. Like I need to tell stories. Um, and so I ended up finding a film school, San Francisco film school, and they had a program at night. So I was able to keep my day job and then pay for school through my day job. And so I would work until about five 30 and then I had class at six and we would go from six to 10 
And then I would make the movies on the weekend. Um, so I did that for 18 months and made six films. Um, but yeah, it, it was, the answer to the question is I just, I had everything but fulfillment, <laughs> you know, like I, I just felt like this, I'll sacrifice the money and, you know, I'll, I'll figure out how to make it work and I'll, I'll get back to making money at some point. Um, but like, if I don't, you know, and I was in my like probably mid thirties at that time. And it just felt like if I don't do this now, I'm going to be my dad, you know, like, I think my dad probably had the same kind of moment where he should have pursued music, but he didn't. And then he, he was miserable from that point on. And I very much don't want that for myself. So I wouldn't call it courage because it was just like, it was a very obvious decision to me. Now, how I was going to make it in film and how I was ever going to make money or how long it was going to take or what are all the stories I'm going to tell like that? I had no idea, but the decision to go pursue film was, it was obvious. I mean, what else was I going to do? It's like, the, it's, it's, it's like all I love, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. So. It's amazing. What That's an amazing story. You kind of put yourself on death ground and, and had a Jack Nicholson moment, like from the movie, uh, good as it gets, where yep. he just has that epiphany in front of the therapist. Like, is this all there is? Is this good as it gets? So yeah, no, that's one of my favorite films. Yeah, it's it's a powerful moment to have, and and um, we're so glad you did it because you're going to make some amazing films. And the thing about your movies is you have something truly important to say. There's a lot of people who want to be creative, but they but sometimes, and it's unfortunate when it happens. You look at it and you say, "Well, why? You don't have anything to say. <laughs> you, uh, I, we don't know you as that person." Um, but it's, I'm sure people in your life, your family were scared for you when you made that decision, but they probably also knew you as someone who had a lot of powerful things to say. And if you could tell that on film, you were going to be okay. Um, so in that vein, in the spirit of that, that comment, uh, it's clear you're trying to make an impact on society. It's clear you're trying to affect change. Um, and, and trying to let people know you understand their struggles. Um, do any of the struggles you write about and create films about, uh, do any of them reflect your, your own struggles in life? Yeah, I think, I think every story, um, every story ultimately like has tons of you in it. Um, whether you realize it at first or not. And, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but at least for me, when I'm writing, I don't always know what I'm writing about until a while into it. And, mm. you know, I think it does help um, having a writing partner and I actually have a second writing partner, Saeed, on a, on a different project. And so with both of them, you know, being able to talk through like, what is this about? What are we trying to say? What what are what will we fight for and not give up? <laughs> is it a character? Is it a theme? Is it a message? And so I think once you, and it takes a while, it's, you know, you definitely have to dig to find it, but I think that digging, you're really digging inside yourself. Um, it's, it's, it's adding yourself. It's, it's opening your heart and figuring out <laughs> who you are, what, what matters most to you, what are you going to share? Um, how can you bring your truth to whatever it is? So I think for me, I kind of start there. Like, 
we don't, at this point, we don't even touch the actual scripts. Like we'll stay working on a treatment and then into an outline. And a lot of that is this process of kind of unearthing like, like what are, what are we going to put our, how much of ourselves or what piece of ourselves are we putting into this? And, and why is that appropriate for this story? And, and what do we want the audience to feel? And I think, you know, a lot of what resonates with people are the, are the stories and the moments that come from vulnerability and the more vulnerable you can be as a creator the more powerful your work will be and the more it will resonate. And like, yeah, it's painful and yeah, it's scary. And even if the audience doesn't recognize those pieces of you in the story, like, you know, that they're there and you know that you've opened yourself up. Um, so I'm always kind of pushing myself to be more and more vulnerable. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's one of the first things I learned in songwriting and uh, I've written about 400 some odd songs, but um, I used to have a writing partner uh, named uh, Jeff and uh, he was, he was, we would write together and, and early on he would always write songs and these would be love songs, kind of trite R and B songs. And he would always write that some girl broke his heart, but then by the end of the song, he had gotten his full revenge on her. And I, oh, wow. and I said, no, 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 no. That's not it. No, no. You have to stay brokenhearted. Yep. You have to stay vulnerable. Now you, now you're the villain. We're not on your side anymore. Yeah. Like keep the people on your side, tell them how you feel. And that was something that I realized from hearing a recorded song that just didn't sound right. And um, it's just a great lesson to learn in storytelling. Keep the audience on the side of the protagonist. Uh, I love it. Uh, speaking yeah. of, of, of great, strong protagonists, I found out you were uh, a big fan of Rosa Parks. She was an idol of yours. <laughs> and I immediately thought after seeing your films, okay, how <laughs> would Emil bring something different to the Rosa Parks story that we hadn't seen before, either through the way you film it oh, or direct it or write it? So damn. I'm curious, how, how would you make a Rosa Parks feature different than what we've already seen or known? That's, man, Chris, you coming with the questions tonight. Um, I'm not sure. I, 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 um, so why she's a huge influence on me is I just very much believe in following your heart and doing what you feel is right and mm -hmm. taking your lumps if necessary. And so I don't know. I mean, if I was to tell a story about her like that, that's kind of what she represents to me. Um, you know, I guess I would find like another part of her life. Um, and maybe, all right, uh, I'm, I'm like literally thinking about this out loud right now. Um, maybe we could do the opposite and we could show why that, why, where that conviction came from, you know, maybe when we first meet her, she doesn't have that. And I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not like an expert on her whole life through and through. Um, but where did she get that? And why did she have that conviction? And, and why was she willing to go against the grain like that? Um, because I do think that, you know, for all of us, there's a, a point in your life where you kind of decide who you are and there's these like critical moments. And a lot of times that comes in reaction to not doing it in the way that you thought you should and learning from that, that pain, that those mistakes and not representing yourself correctly. And then when you have a chance to correct it, hopefully you make that decision. 
So I would probably, I would look for a moment in her life when she wasn't what we know her for. Um, and then we see her evolve into becoming who she, who, who she, you know, who she is. Um, yes. Yeah. I love Something the idea. Like I love the idea and I encourage anybody out there to, because there is a narrative that we're going to all learn in high school or college about Rosa Parks. And it's, it's very, um, thin. We learn sort of the high points. We learn the beats, if you will, yeah. but, but go out there and get a book on her. I encourage everyone in this audience to do that. And you find out so many cool details. Like for example, she'd had run-ins with that bus driver okay. on many, on many occasions and had said on the record that she wouldn't have got on the bus that day had she known he was the driver. Right. And there's another like story within the story, because what people have to understand is, is when one class of people has more rights than the other class of people, then the class that has the rights gets to do whatever they, they get to operate with impunity. Mm -hmm. And so what happened on the buses are, is that they're all the black women would be sitting on the back of the bus, but the white boys would go back there and flirt with them. Mm -hmm. And sit with them. And some of the black girls didn't mind it. And some mm -hmm. of them did. Right. And, and so that was culture in the South. So you would always have these, these, you know, stuff going on in the back of the bus. Right. And uh, another thing to think about, too, is the way those buses were back then. It was bench seating where you had three to each side. And so the person, the white person that was getting mad that Rosa wouldn't stand up and give him the seat, um, uh, he, he, uh, that, that's what we get told, but, I, but according to these books and the history, that guy really would have been fine standing. It was the bus driver that had mm. a problem with Rosa because of previous right. run-ins right, and right. he wasn't going to allow this white man to stand up and break right. the bus's rules. So it's, it's really right. a fascinating story. And uh, if you get to make it one day, I'll be the first person in line with popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so, I mean, I think, you know, and you kind of sharing that with us. I mean, I think that's it. Whenever you dig into any story, it's always more nuanced and layered and complex than kind of the simplistic watered down version that we get. Um, and so that is what I enjoy. I enjoy those nuances and the shades of gray. And, you know, like you're saying, like the passenger actually, he was okay standing, but the bus driver wasn't. And, um, so I, and then the idea that the, the white dudes went to the back and they're flirting and like, you know, just, it's not as clean cut as I think a lot of us understand. And I think that's true with most stories as you dig into them, all those details that make it so much more interesting and complicated and gray. Uh, I think those come out and, and that's really like what I love. Uh, I, I like exploring those areas. Uh, likewise, my friend, I, I do. It's, it's interesting. They say that if you want to be a better writer, read more. Mm -hmm. And in this interview, I've learned if you want to be a better filmmaker, watch more films because mm -hmm. that's, that's who you've been as well. Um, you've had this interesting stint because you, you were in film, did a lot of PA work, said, this is for the birds. I'm going to go get a job in San Francisco. Did that <laughs> for 10 years, came back, made amazing films. So what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making these days? Um, one is following trends. You know, like I think you see this in music too, but where like emerging creators, you know, they try to figure out what's hot right now or what's going to be hot next. And then they, they make to that. Like, so for an example, in our current climate with COVID, you know, we're all getting the advice very early on, like, make sure your stories are contained. You don't want too many locations. You don't want 
big crowds because it just adds to the complexity and the difficulty. You probably don't get the funding, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and so for me, and, and I think some of this is due to my AD background, but I like the challenge of like, here, here's the story that I feel the most passionate about. I will run through a wall to make this story happen. And then it becomes, well, how are we going to do it? You know? And, um, that's, I feel like most of the success of one, two, three has come from like, this wasn't the story people were telling us, you know, when they would read the scripts, why would you make this? Do we need another film about the subject? The story itself is so gruesome and dark and like, who wants to watch that? What festival programmers are going to program it? And if I had listened to that, I wouldn't have made it. Um, and if I was trying to make something that was trendy or that I thought would be popular, I wouldn't have made it and we wouldn't be talking right now. Um, so I feel like that's a, a big mistake that people make. You see it in business too. Um, even at the startup that I worked at, it didn't come from what, what, what is, what is the thing that we're most passionate about? Let's build that. Mm -hmm. And I guess for me, and it's not to say you can't be successful. I mean, that's an example of an, ex of a successful company. And there's definitely filmmakers that follow that type of mindset that do fine for themselves. But for me, it's just the opposite of how I feel it. Like, what are you going to say with the time that you have in this world? You know, right. you only have so many, so many days, so many years. What are you going to say with that? What are you going to make with that? What are you going to put your heart in your, and all the sacrifices, uh, the sacrifices that you trade off the, t the time that you're not with your family, you're not with your friends, that time you can't get back. So what are you going to do with that time? And to me, it's telling things that I feel like are, you know, worth that trade off and extremely important. Um, so that would be my biggest piece of it that I, I don't even want to, I hesitate to call it advice because <laughs> it's just how I approach things, but I feel like you can get something that is much different and very unique. And, you know, we hear a lot as filmmakers, like you need to find your voice. If you want to find your voice right from your heart and don't worry about what's popular or, you know, writing purely to your resources. I mean, yes, keep them in mind, but I think powerful stories come from your heart. Yeah, I love it. And I think one of the biggest things that happened in, in my business uh, where we go and do advisor producing and executive producing is the conflation of the word advice and consulting, which are two different words mm -hmm. and have two different com complete definitions. Right. And always, I have this train of thought, Emil, that advice is fine as long as it's free. <laughs> right. consult, consultation can cost but right. advice should be free so i'll take it i'll i'll use the word on your behalf it's great advice i hope people take it and hey guess what it's free and that's the best thing about it uh how did you find yourself in a hot air balloon over egypt with 23 people in a basket <laughs> <laughs> um so my girlfriend gina she's uh She's wanted to go to Egypt her whole life. And so we had the opportunity um, to go last November. Um, and I'm definitely afraid of heights. And, <laughs> uh, it's not that I didn't think it would be beautiful, but it was very much like, well, I got you. If this is what you want to do, let's do it. And then um, so that, you know, they wanted to do it right at sunrise. So we woke up super early and, 
And then they just kind of like start yelling at us and putting us in this hot air balloon. And there's these little sections that hold like two or three people per section. And then they didn't, I was like on the opposite side of the barrier from her. So I ended up being with, I think this like Canadian woman and her husband (laughs) and I'm like, and and yeah, it was terrifying. But um, I mean, flying over the, what is it called? Um, um, man, I'm gonna make myself sound like stupid here, but, uh, the Valley of Kings, the Valley of Kings. Yeah. Where all the tombs are, they're all like uh, carved into the, this like mountainside. Um, it was amazing. I was just like terrified. So it was like half terror, half couldn't believe how beautiful it was. The sun's coming up. I'm like looking at, you know, things that are thousands of years old. Um, and this, and you know, a hot air balloon. I don't know, Chris, if you've been in one, but it's I like, have it's, not. <laughs> okay. It's as gentle as it gets. Um, it, it shouldn't be terrifying. It's, it's beautiful and very peaceful, but I just don't, I don't like being more than like five, six feet off the ground. Did so. you see the, uh, David Blaine trick that he did with the hot air balloon? Uh, no, because I don't even like watching stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's called Ascension. It's on YouTube. And basically he holds the rope that's hanging off of a hot air balloon. He yeah. holds it and lets it float him up into the air about 24, 25,000 feet. Yeah. And then he drops. Yeah. See, I want no part of that. <laughs> yeah. That's not my thing. Yeah, exactly. And well, the fascinating thing about that was that for me, it's the heights. I'm like you. It's the heights. It's the idea of dying. It's like, I don't want to die this way. Why even do it? Like, why are we doing this foolish stuff anyway? Yeah. But what I found out watching it is that the big threat is that you're going to run out of blood oxygen because the higher you go at that rate, your blood can't, there's just less oxygen in the air that high. So you can literally pass out and then not wake up before you hit the ground. And, uh, um, so he's a, he's an odd one, but, but the world's a better, a better place for it. Uh, this has oh, been so yeah. much fun. Um, he's my favorite. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this has been so much fun, Emil. Uh, what's, what's next for you? Um, so currently I'm working on two projects. Um, Derek and I are working on a feature called asylum. Um, it takes a look at all of the issues going um, maybe not all the issues, but it takes a look at our, our immigration system in the U.S. and the injustices surrounding it um, is very much in the style and vein of one, two, three. So yeah. it's very intense, very emotional, very uh, confrontational in the, in the subjects that it looks at. Um, so we're working on that. That's a feature film. And then separately, I'm also working on a pilot um, that is a dramedy called BBC uh, about a black male porn star and I'm working on that, <laughs> working on that with Saeed, uh, my other writing partner. Um, so we're currently developing that and, and I've been really fortunate to be able to get some creative notes from some, from some of the people over at HBO. So that's just been an amazing learning opportunity and, and we'll see how far we can take the project. I can't wait to see that stuff. It's going to be great. I know you're going to do a wonderful job. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media, on the internet, and maybe even where they can see your work and, and make sure you pitch the date that one, two, three, all eyes on me premieres on HBO. So yeah, so the, uh, one, two, three, all eyes on me will be uh, premiering on HBO in April. I don't have the exact date yet. They haven't given it to me, but it will be on in April across the U S um, we're working on some deals overseas. Um, and then it's also currently in contention for an Oscar. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for Got that. 
Thanks, man. Thank you. Um, yeah. And then as far as where to find me, probably the best place is Instagram. Our personal account is Emil G80. Um, and then the production company is Waterlight Films, which is purely just my filmmaking stuff. So um, those are probably the two best places. Awesome. And we'll end with this a little bit off topic, but a little bit uh, uh, on topic because you mentioned it earlier. You got your start in softcore por- porn <laughs> yeah. and once worked with the queen of anal. Did you ever <laughs> did you ever find out why she wore that back brace between takes? <laughs> I don't even know how you know that. Um, no, uh, no, I did not. I just thought it was hilarious. I mean, uh, a lot of the guys on the crew uh, were like really into porn and and they would kind of <laughs> give us a heads up like, oh, my God, today is so and so. And I didn't know any of the people it was not really my thing. Um, <laughs> right. But I remember one day, you know, we had and we would have their their stage names, but, you know, I didn't <laughs> that didn't mean anything to me. And this guy was like, no, I mean, you, you have to understand this is like she's like the queen of anal. And then, and I'm like, all right, like, I don't, is that supposed to do something for me? Like, that's again, not really my thing. So, um, she gets there and then she was really frail. No, no offense to, to this woman. Um, but she was just like sticking bones. And then she had this back brace on and I'm like, thank God, this is just soft core because I don't think she could take much more than that. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was an interesting time in my life for sure. Oh, it sounds like it was, and and um, that's why we have to love living every day because all these experiences you can get if you just <laughs> have the gumption to go out there and give it a try. And for all you filmmakers, he got that just by posting Craigslist ads for jobs. So that that's um, there's no excuse, there's no reason not to go out there, do your thing, be creative, and make the world a better place, just like uh, you're doing every day, Emil. So I got to thank you for this time, and this is a fun conversation, and I know you don't need it, but I'm wishing you the best of luck, and uh, I hope we can stay in touch. Yeah, man, thank, thank you, and, and thanks to Nick uh, as well for having me on. It's been a blast. Anytime, brother. Talk soon. Okay. All right. Peace. Peace. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.